Hello, and welcome to Lion and Mouse Commentary. We are your hosts, Holland. And Tori. Two best friends as different as a lion and a mouse. Today, we are reviewing Avatar The Last Airbender, Season 1, Episodes 1 through 5. And we will be ranking this on an objective scale of 0 to 10, with only two points allotted for personal taste. Feel free to agree, disagree, or just learn about something new. Just be sure to tread lightly. There are spoilers ahead. Cut to the intro. For our new listeners, we will be breaking down the scoring system by category as we go, but the full breakdown is also available on our website. So let's get started. So I actually chose today's topic. I chose Avatar The Last Airbender, the TV show, uh, season one, and because of our Stranger Things debacle, uh, (laughs) we... we, Far too long of an episode. (laughs) Right. Uh, We are reviewing episodes one through five of season one. Which is about, what, um... An hour and 50 minutes worth of content. Yeah. So. Yeah. So if you want to hear us review the whole show, let us know on our socials or our website suggestion box. Um, so we just didn't want to do it all in one go. That would be a lot. Mm-hmm. So some information about this show. It is a TV show that was created by Michael Dante Martino and Brian Konitzko. It aired on Nickelodeon. The brief kind of synopsis, the series follows the adventures of the main protagonist, Aang, and his friends who must save the world by defeating Fire Lord Ozai and ending the destructive war with the Fire Nation. The show first aired on February 21st, 2005, and the series concluded with a widely lauded two-hour television movie on July 19th, 2008. Avatar The Last Airbender was popular with both audiences and critics, garnering 5.6 million viewers on its best-rated showing and receiving high ratings in the Nicktoons lineup even outside its 6- to 11-year-old demographic. Avatar has been nominated for and won awards from the annual Annie Awards, the Genesis Awards, and the Primetime Emmy Awards, among others. The first season's success prompted Nickelodeon to order a second and third season. The first part of a movie trilogy titled Avatar The Last Airbender was released on July 1st, 2010, and a live-action reimagining produced by Netflix in partnership with Nickelodeon entered production in 2021. The cast of the animated show includes Zach Tyler Eason, Mae Whitman, Jack DeSena, Dante Basco, Jesse Flower, Dee Bradley Baker, Mako, Greg Baldwin, Gray... Oh, crap, and I looked up... Delisle. Delisle, that's right. Uh, Gray Delisle and Mark Hamill. It's funny, I... I stuttered a bit on her name, but I looked it up before we (laughs) hit record, and I still just flew out of my brain. So, if you haven't watched the show, this is is not a blind review. Tori and I refreshed our memories for this episode, but we've both... We've both watched the show multiple times in its entirety. Yeah, and we're both pretty big fans of the show. So, if you want to watch it completely unexposed by us... Go ahead. Now's your chance. We're going to be giving a lot of spoilers. However, we're going to do our best to keep spoilers limited to these first five episodes that we're reviewing. So if you have watched the first season or if you've only watched the first five episodes, it should be safe 
for the rest of the season if you want to, or the rest of the show if you want to continue to enjoy it then. So that being said, Tori, you can go ahead and get us into our first category. Okay. So for TV shows, our first category is plot, story, and cohesion, um, including resolution through a season, even though we won't be getting that far. If we were talking about the end of a season, we would talk about the resolution as well. But um, we have a total possible two points for this category, and I gave it full two points. Um, I think that the best way for me to describe this show is it's very balanced. It's a very balanced kind of show. It's got great pacing, it's got great humor, uh, tension, exposition, and all of those things are also balanced with their opposite. So fast-paced things get balanced with slow-paced things, humor gets balanced with serious moments, tension with lighthearted moments, and exposition with visual. Um, and I think for a show that was created for a demographic that's very young, it's just absolutely artistic. Um, just... And not, I and mean, I'm not even just talking about the aesthetics. I'm just talking about as a whole. I feel like this entire show is very balanced. Um, one of the first things I want to talk about, though, is the intro slash theme. I think even if you are not what you would consider a Avatar: The Last Airbender fan, fan Avatar: The Last Airbender fan, very difficult for me to say for some reason. If you hear water. <laughs> Earth. It's like, you know what's coming. Like, it's become so iconic at this point. Um, you know, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Everybody knows that quote at this point. Um, I will be surprised if you don't. Um, but not only that, but it's a wonderful first story piece. Like, the first episode, this start, the fir very first episode, the pilot episode, that intro slash theme section is much longer. There's more exposition than there is in episodes two and, and on. Um, and I think it's very effective for kind of giving us a base setup of where the world is before we jump in. Um, and I think it's really effective. It's a really great storytelling piece. Um, the first conflict is set up in kind of a simple way. And I think that first conflict is uh, Zuko searching for the Avatar. That's kind of like our base first conflict of the show. And it's kind of set up simply, but it's very soon after the setup of that conflict that you can already start to see that there are, there are story layers to this conflict. Um, we start to see uh, layers of motivation in Zuko. Uh, layers of motivation in uh, Sokka and Katara and even in Aang himself and sort of all of that. And and I think that it be, it they give us these layers. They let us see glimpses of these layers without explaining everything away f in the first couple episodes. These are, are story pieces that we get to start unraveling, but they don't unravel so quickly that now we have nothing to look forward to. Um, and because of that, I feel like the characters that we're introduced to in these first five episodes already feel very complex without being overly complicated. They're easy to follow, but they feel like real people. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in the character um, section, but um, it just kind of goes back to my first thought of like, this show is just so balanced. Um, I think that the world building is so incredible. 
Um, and the world building is so good that even outside of this show, there are like visual novels and comics that expand upon the world of Avatar that are cons that are canon. They explain previous Avatars previous to Aang in much detail. They explain a lot of what happens after the first show, before The Legend of Korra starts, which is the spinoff show uh, that came years later. They There's a ton of depth to the world. And it never feels overwhelming because I think the great thing about Avatar and its world is you can dive in as shallow or as deeply as you want as a, like, consumer of the world. And whatever makes you satisfied is good. You're not missing any pieces. Even if you just stick with like, I'm just going to watch a show and that's it, which is pretty much me. I haven't really read any of the um, like visual novels. Um, I know they exist and I've seen them out there and I've flipped through a few, but I've never like dived into them. Sometimes I'll go onto the Avatar The Last Airbender wiki and like read things because they summarize really well. And it's always amazing to me how things tie together. So just huge props and kudos to the world building because um, it's simple enough that it's, I feel, palatable to a wide audience. But for those fans who want a little more, a little deeper, there is so much out there that can kind of satisfy that thirst if you are kind of like a really deep lore kind of loving fan. Um, I think it's incredible that like each nation is also presented to have its own customs and culture, but they all kind of fit into the same world as a whole. No, none of the nations feel out of place, um, but you kind of get this idea that like the Earth Nation and the Fire Nation, they have their own customs and cultures that are important to them and represent them as a people. Um, and I think for a kids show, that's a pretty uh, like well fleshed out idea is that you do have multiple cultures within this world. Um, and there's still kind of like this underlying, um, desire of like peace through most of the characters that you, um, I guess get an opportunity to see. Um, since the idea of this show is, it sort of follows Aang, Sokka, and Katara mainly, um, and it is a very adventure-based show. So there's going to be lots of episodes that um, you meet characters that you may only see for that episode or only, you know, appear for a short while. Um, but they help further the story in the world and then their part is done and the main characters move on. And I think that that's pretty effective for a kid's show. Um because you get these wonderful sort of like character of the week personalities that are um, great for the storytelling and they deliver the piece that they deliver, um, but nothing ever feels too drawn out, which I think is, is a good thing as far as like the pacing of the story. Um, and I really appreciate that we don't have a need for multiple episodes of setup in the beginning. We get like half of the first episode is set up and then we're just cruising. And I appreciate that. I don't need to be told every detail of the world in the first 12 episodes of a series. I can discover the facets of the world as we adventure through the world. Um, and I think that's one thing that Avatar The Last Airbender really does well is that they give you enough information that you're never lost, but they never um, 
bombard you with information that is not necessarily relevant to the episode that you're in. And I think it helps keep the episodes at the length they are, which is like 21 to 24 minutes. Um, you know, the typical half hour Nickelodeon show. Um, so because of that, I think that it really, really shines in kind of just the way that it's built everything and every story piece fits so seamlessly into the next um, that I had to give it two out of two points. Awesome. Um, yeah, so I scored this category out of two points. I gave it one and a half points out of two. So the I, I agree with pretty much everything you've kind of already touched on. I think that the storytelling in general, especially in these first five episodes, do a really good job of kind of peeling back the layers and you're you're entering into the story. You're not watching it as an outside observer and having everything told to you in the first three episodes. You're entering into the world with these characters and you're learning things as they learn things. I think that's a great way to tell the story, especially in a TV show where the plot is going to take place over multiple episodes, especially a, a kid's show of 22-minute episodes where the first season, I believe, has 20 episodes in it. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. a lot of content that you're going to have. And like you said, you could be very easily bored out of your mind if you're just being given exposition for the first few episodes. And of course, for for kids, you're not they're not going to sit and pay attention to that anyways. I think that, um, so the episode, kind of, I kind of did kind of an overview, like a flyover of kind of the first, ep first five episodes. I feel like episode one through three, which is episode one is the boy in the iceberg, episode two is the Avatar Returns, and episode three is the Southern Air Temple. I feel like those first three episodes do a really good job of introducing these characters to you and then establishing the plot. Like you said, the intro kind of gives you this big, like, whole world plot that, you know, the Fire Nation attacked, the Avatar has to save the world. So those really high stakes of the entire world are given in the intro. But then these first three episodes kind of establish the conflict amongst our main cast. So you're introduced to Aang, Sokka, and Katara. You find out that Aang is the Avatar in the first three episodes. You find out that, you know, he's been missing. The world's kind of fallen into disarray while he's been gone. You meet Zuko. You also meet Zhao. So you have these two villains, like Zhao and, and Zuko are villains in the sense that they're villains to Aang, Sokka, and Katara, but then they're also villains to each other. Mm -hmm. So it, it introduces this really interesting dynamic because now you're like, well, between Zuko and Zhao, like, who am I rooting for here? You know, because they're both bad, but, you know, Zhao is not so great to Zuko, clearly, in this tension that we're seeing. So... It's really good dynamics. And then, of course, the dynamic between Zuko and his uncle Iroh. You're introduced to that dynamic. Sokka and Katara's relationship is established pretty well in the first few episodes. And then Aang just kind of falls right into the mix. And, and you have this really good trio as your main heroes of the story. And then episodes four and five is really kind of starts moving the story forward as far as character growth and development goes. So you're seeing how... The Avatar and the Fire Nation affect the nations and the world as a whole. So you're seeing the effects of 
kind of this introduction and the way that that's kind of trickled down into these smaller areas. So like Kiyoshi Island and Omashu, you're seeing the effects of this kind of big plot that you've been given to start. Now you're seeing kind of the symptoms of the, in a way, like the symptoms of the disease and the, the growth that we're seeing in our characters and, and these nuances of their character in general in, in these episodes four and five. So I think it's a great way to kind of get the story started. You have really high stakes overarching and then you have your conflict amongst the characters themselves and you're just introduced that to that relatively gradually, but not so gradually that you feel like it's very slow paced. The pacing is done really well in this show. The complexity of the plot is actually really engaging. You know, for adult viewers, I think there's a reason that a lot of adults enjoy this show. I actually introduced my parents to this show who did not watch it as children. They watched it strictly as adults and they find aspects of the show that they enjoy uh, because the plot I think is just done really well, even in these first five episodes. Yeah, so the, the, I kind of already touched on the source of conflict. I think it's really engaging. You really, it gives you reason to care for these characters and care why they're doing what they're doing. The humor and the dialogue and writing is just done really well. It feels really organic to these characters. You're starting to identify character traits that these characters have. And so then they act consistently with those qualities that they possess but we'll kind of touch more into that in, in the characters category as well. There is a lot of exposition in the first five minutes of episode one. I did make a note of that. The You find in the first five minutes, just this dialogue between Sokka and Kantara, you find about, you find out about waterbending, you find out that their mom died, you find out about airbenders. I mean, you, you find out a lot of exposition in the first five minutes of the episode. And I think you could be either critical or not of that, sometimes it, it doesn't really sound completely organic to the characters in that in that exposition, but it's also kind of necessary. You kind of need to know what the heck is going on with these with these people. And it kind of also establishes that the knowledge of like the airbenders and the avatar and water bending is known by even these small, seemingly insignificant villager children in the South Pole. A couple things, though, I, I did take off half a point. There are a couple things that, and, and I've tried to look at it through the lens of just evaluating these first five episodes and not comparing it to the rest of the show. But a couple things with the plot in general, I just found a little odd. And granted, it, it, the first episode is, is certainly a pilot episode. And these are, you know, you're really just getting the ball rolling as far as the plot goes. But a couple things like Katara, right out of the gate, tells Aang that he she wants him to teach her waterbending when all she knows about him is that he's an airbender. She doesn't know he's the avatar at that point. And it just seems kind of nonsensical. Why would you think that an airbender could teach you how to waterbend? They don't really establish that. I mean, they like I think as the audience, we kind of expect that this is the avatar because we're kind of thinking one step ahead of the characters. But it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And and comparing that, knowing the rest of the, the show, that that's not really a consistent opinion throughout the rest of the show. That's not really a spoiler. So I thought that was a little odd. 
The part where in episode three with the Southern Arab Temple, when A- Aang kind of goes into the Avatar state when he finds out that Monk Gyatso is, is dead and that the Fire Nation invaded his home. Um, the whole part where Katara gives this kind of monologue to him about they're his, they're his family now and, you know, calms him down and he kind of comes out of the Avatar state. I, I think that part is a little corny, to be honest. Um, it, again, it's a kid show, so I can't be too harsh on it, but it's kind of this long, what feels like a really long monologue. And I think that for a kid show, you kind of are like, okay, yeah, no, you shouldn't get, you know, really rageful and about, you know, your entire people being slaughtered. But at the same time, it's like, um, yeah, that would kind of make anybody upset and angry. So it's a little, I, I don't want to say that it completely downplays Aang's experience and grief that he's going through. It doesn't, it really doesn't downplay that or minimize that amount of grief. But it does seem, that monologue that she kind of gives does seem a little like corny and tropey. It kind of seems like you're putting a bandaid on a, on a, really big wound. Um, But I do like that in this show, moving the plot forward, that doesn't then become the entirety of Aang's character and the entirety of the plot is now Aang is just wrecked with grief for the whole rest of season one. I think they do a good job of using that to kind of pull Aang out of what could be this very melancholy character. I like, one thing I did like in episode four when they, the fisherman is told that the avatar's on Kyoshi Island and you watch the fish travel as the news travels with the fish. I think that's a great like visual picture of how word spreads quickly and then that fish ends up on Zuko's table and so now he knows where the avatar is. Little moments like that I think are just really creative in developing the plot and it's kind of relatable to real life, how word can travel really quickly. Kind of a general thing that I, 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 another reason I didn't give it full points is I think it's odd in these first five episodes that we're told that the stakes are really high, that the Avatar has been gone for a hundred years, that the Fire Nation is, is in a way oppressive. Zuko has been looking for the Avatar. Nobody's ever been able to find the Avatar. This kind of really high stakes that now the Avatar is back. This is, this is a big deal. And then Immediately after we've established all of that, Aang is like, okay, now I have a bucket list of things I want to do. Like, we're going to fly all over the world and and ride the hog monkeys and ride on the back of giant koi fish and things like that. And to be fair, I, I understand in characters that it's consistent kind of with Aang's kind of happy-go-lucky character quality. However, it does seem odd to me from a plot standpoint, that it's like, here we have this really dramatic plot, and now none of those stakes really matter, and we have time for Aang to have a bucket list, and for them to just fly over the world doing this, like, goofy road trip. It's not even, like, a road trip to the North Pole, which they kind of establish that, that, okay, let's go to the North Pole to learn waterbending, but then it's like, oh, but we also have time to gallivant around the entire world doing nonsensical things. And so I think that, in general, I find that kind of Maybe I'm being too critical because it is a kid's show, but I just find that a little, I guess, childish would be the way to put it. It just seems really inconsistent with all this dramatic buildup we've been given for the first three episodes. 
And now all of a sudden, I mean, when they're in episode four, it opens up, they're literally going to ride on the back of koi fish. And it, it ends up working well for the plot in the sense that they learn lessons and they're, you know, it opens the world and you're developing characters. But at the same time, the reason that they're there seems kind of, I guess, minor and childish. And it doesn't f- seem to fit that we're supposed to be going to the North Pole to learn waterbending because the whole world's been oppressed by this nation for however many years. So that's why I took half a point off. I felt like I couldn't be too critical of that. But in these first five episodes, I I felt like one and a half points out of two kind of accounted for that. But uh, no spoilers. I mean, I, I do think that it the future episodes kind of smooth that out and it makes a little more sense, but we're only doing episodes one through five. So one and a half points out of two for me. Okay. Um, So our next category is characters. um, And we allot three total points um, for TV shows. And I gave it full three points. Um, The first thing I want to talk about though, is how absolutely phenomenal the voice acting is. Every single character, main, secondary, one-line Joe Schmo in this village, every single voice actor, I think, just absolutely nails it. And I think that at this point, the voice actors for the main cast, like, I'd say, you know, your main, like, six characters at this point, um they're iconic. I could not imagine anybody else doing those roles. Uh, just it, I think that it's something to be commended when you have come to like rely almost on those voices to tell the story through your characters. And, and I think that the voice acting for this series is just so consistently good. Um, so that's my first note for sure. Um, another thing I think is that I think that each main character and even like your bigger secondary characters, they're very distinct, not only in personality, but I noticed even in humor styles, I think every main character in this series has funny moments. Of course, you have some characters that are naturally more funny than others, but I think that every character has funny moments and their style of humor is different. And I think that it's refreshing so that you're not cracking the same type of joke over and over and over. Um, so I think it it sort of helps kind of flesh them out, make them feel ra- well-rounded and like real people. Um, And I think on that note, every character feels really believable in the context of where and how they fit. Um, You, I, I, let's, like, let me just talk about Aang for a minute. So, um, Aang does have these moments of, like, seriousness because he understands the weight of his responsibility. Um, But then on the other side of that, he's still a 10-year-old child. And he was pulled out of the context of the world he knew and now he's back without a real true grasp of the context of the world he's now in um and i think that makes for a very interesting dynamic in ang um i'm just gonna just make a quick note though he's 12 because all the avatar stands are probably gonna just throw a lot of that correction this way but (laughs) 12 
still young. My yes. point is that he's very young and he's still in that sort of period of life where um, they are like kids that 12 year olds should be happy go lucky and lighthearted. And um, I think it's, it's harder to expect a 12 year old to carry well the weight of the world that Aang has. I think Aang carries it very well for a 12 year old. So some moments, like you mentioned that there are some moments that feel very childish in these initial first five episodes. I'm okay with it because there's a lot of adjustment that Aang has to go through. And so if he has mm, a few childish moments, I think it's probably just due to the fact that like he's still just trying to reorient himself to this new world. So I I'm okay with it in that in that way. Um and I think that if you look at um kind of our main trio like um Aang, Sokka, Katara, they all have very distinct personalities that I think they fill weaknesses for each other. Um and I think that's really important kind of in any sort of story that's very adventure based sort of an odyssey, if you will, um, is you need kind of your main grouping. You need people that are going to be good at certain things over others. And then somebody else in the in the group needs to be able to fill the deficit in this character. Um, and I think that the three of them do a lot of that for each other. Um, when I was younger, I used to think that Katara was so annoying and boring. And over the years and discussing Avatar with you too in detail, because we have talked about this show a lot because it does, it is an important show, I think for both of us, um, that uh, now I look at Katara and I'm like, you know, Maybe she does have annoying or overbearing moments, but she's what those two boys need, especially in the early parts of the show. Um, and she carries a lot of the responsibility um, in a different way than I think Aang and Sokka do. I think everybody has their own responsibility um, and they feel the weight of that responsibility. And I think for Katara, a lot of that responsibility is the weight of making sure the two of them being Aang and Sokka are taken care of so that they can efficiently do what they need to do. Um, so I think a lot of Katara's responsibility boils down to her feeling like she is going to take over kind of the nurturing of the group. Um, and I think she does it really well. And then I think for Sokka, a lot of his is like, he feels like, I, I think, for Sokka, a lot of his is like personal responsibility because he's not a bender. And I think that sometimes you, we see kind of through the cracks of, of Sokka's facade to kind of, uh, I think he can sometimes feel inferior because he's not a bender. And so he wants to try so hard to make up for that in other ways. And so you see a lot of Sokka like really trying to like overcompensate, I think, for whatever the situation may may call for. And I think that's why he sometimes is clumsy. Um, I think I'm, at this point, I feel like I'm a, maybe extrapolating or uh, diving too deep into some of these characters. But my point is, is that they all have sort of a similar, obviously the goal is the same, the end goal is the same, but they all have different ways that they tackle these things. And I think for a kid's show, um, it just makes them feel so flushed out. And, and it's just um, so rare, I think, to see characters 
that feel this believable in a children's 30-minute Nickelodeon show. Um, even characters like Zuko, it's like, we're introduced to him and we're like, oh, dude, this guy is bad news. He, who knows what he plans to do with Aang. You know, we're not given a lot of that information in the beginning, but we still see kind of chinks in his armor too. And like, why is he motivated to chase after Aang? Okay, so obviously there's been a falling out with his family and his kingdom. He's seen as an outcast now. Why is that? And we get like small pieces of his story as well. And, and I think it just helps that no character in this series feels one-noted or flat. We're given the opportunity to see these people as people and not just as characterizations of a personality. Um, I think that's just really to be respected. Um, I feel like I kind of tangented there. My last note is simply Cabbage Man appears. His first appearance yep. is in these first five episodes. And um, he's also very iconic, I feel like. So it was good to see him. Um, so that being said, I think characters definitely deserves three out of three points. Yeah. I also gave this three out of three points for characters. Uh, a lot of what you said, I completely agree with. Like, these characters are so believable as they're portrayed. The kids feel like kids. Like like you said, you know, Aang, yeah, he does act childish. He has these kind of carefree, cheerful, you know, tendencies. But then he also has this very strong moral compass and he's completely fearless. And I think that as a protagonist, it makes him such an admirable character. And yet he's still very believable as a 12-year-old boy, like you said. Um, Sokka and Katara's relationship with each other feels like an organic brother-sister relationship. Likewise, Iroh and Zuko's relationship feels like an organic kind of uncle-nephew relationship. You see Iroh has this sort of mentor relationship with Zuko, but then Zuko's the, the prince and has, you know, an attitude problem and kind of bosses his uncle around and isn't very respectful. And yet you see this this level of grace that Iroh extends to Zuko in these first few episodes. And so the, the, it's an intriguing dynamic that they have when Zuko is clearly this younger, hot-headed, you know, character. And then Iroh's clearly, you know, very knowledgeable, especially about bending and things like that. So they have a really interesting dynamic, but it's also very believable. They they act consistent to their characters. Overall, these first five episodes really establish personalities and qualities of the characters that do remain consistent throughout the show. So it was neat to kind of have to look at this kind of microscope the lens a little bit and only talk about these first five episodes because you really see, if you're familiar with the show, the rest of the show, you really do see consistency amongst these characters in these first five episodes. And then you see that carried on throughout the rest of the show. Um, I think bringing in Commander Zhao as kind of an antagonist to these antagonists is a great move in the characters. It makes Zuko and Iroh seem less invincible. They seem to have vulnerabilities. They have, you know, external pressure put on them. They're kind of hiding the information that they have. It just, it makes it very interesting and enables the viewer to learn more about our villains of this story. I think that Zuko as a character, you find out that he's been banished for two years. He needs this avatar to kind of 
remove himself from this outsider position to be back into the Fire Nation. And yet, when with this conflict between him and Zhao, you see him have this moment of honor. So, and Iroh commends him for that. So you see these these underlying qualities in Zuko as a villain that are admirable qualities. So he's not the most evil villain because clearly Zhao is this underhanded kind of dirty antagonist to Zuko. So it in in that way, I think that it's really interesting. It makes him a very interesting villain. He's not just this one note, you know, evil man up in a tower that's just evil and you don't know why and don't know anything about him. Sokka and Katara, I just think they're great characters. Their dynamic between each other is great. And then their relationship with Aang is is really good too. Sokka's kind of this typical older brother. He's has a lot of bravado and machismo and, and he's just really, you know, kind of over the top when it comes to his perspective on being a warrior. He's trying to train these little kids to be warriors and yet... In episode four, with the Kyoshi Warriors, you watch him with this kind of chauvinist perspective, learn something new, and then humble himself Mm -hmm. with these Kyoshi Warriors. And so it's a great moment where you see, like you've kind of already mentioned, these layers to these characters. And I think that moments like that, and you see even just like characters that we don't see often, like Suki... um, it's like we we get to see these moments of like the our main cast truly like making new connections in a way that feels natural and not like oh well they have to have some sort of relationship because it furthers the plot. Like sure that's maybe part of it but it doesn't feel that way. You know, it feels like this would really this could really happen like this. Right. It just makes their their character qualities and their relationship and interactions with other people just feel very organic. So they're just so well developed. Katara, I feel like she gets a lot of hate. Um, because, like you kind of mentioned, Sokka is Sokka and Aang are really funny. They're really, you know, in, they're very pleasant characters to watch. Yet, if they were left to their own devices, it would probably be a disaster. Especially right. you see Aang's kind of, you know, maybe scattered. Like I like I mentioned, like he has this bucket list to go all over the globe. And it, it, if you watch you know, really analytically, the places he points to on the map are literally... So inefficient, this route. (laughs) All the way across the globe. So Katara is is extremely kind, and she's very protective of Aang. Like, when he goes into the Avatar state, she is, you know, goes to try and save him from the Unagi when that goes awry. And she's not necessarily the fun character, but you see these qualities in her that she's, she's fearless, she's... She's thoughtful. She's, I mean, she's the one that's going and buying groceries when they're on the Kyoshi Island because they need to pack things for the mm-hmm. trip. And it, it makes sense because you find out right away at the, in the first five minutes of the very first episode, here she's been taking on all these roles because her and Sokka's mom have died. So it just makes a lot of logical sense that for a young girl who's lost her mom, that a lot of those roles of kind of, making sure there's food on the table, making sure the clothes are clean, making sure, you know, all of those roles that probably typically fell to her mother, she has filled those needs. And so that translates 
into her character. I think in a her great Katara moment is when they go to the Southern Air Temple and they see the Fire Nation helmet. And at first, she they call over Aang to come see. You know, like this is proof that Fire Nation has been here, and it obviously hasn't gone well. And then at the very last second, she changes her mind and she hides it with the snow. And as Aang walks away, Sokka says to her, you know, you can't protect him forever. And she just has nothing to say because she knows that Sokka is right, logically, but she feels this heavy responsibility to, like, protect, I guess, his mental state or emotional state. Um, So it's like you kind of see that conflict, that burden on her, and she doesn't really know yet how to navigate it. Yeah. And it's still kind of like I... Like we kind of have have mentioned earlier, if that if she was an adult character, you would kind of want to chide her for being that. I, I don't even know helicoptery. Yeah, overbearing. yeah, yeah, overbearing. I guess yeah. or or overstepping that boundary and like he's he's Ang has a right to know what happened to his people and and you know Sokka kind of sees it as like he he has to know the truth and so. However, she's a child, you know, she's still learning to navigate the world. And so it still feels like an organic decision that a, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old girl would make that call, even though it may not necessarily be the wisest decision for an adult to make. It does seem organically like a decision that a young teenager would make. Um, Last kind of note I have, I think Suki in episode four and Boomy in episode five are great foils to Sokka and Aang to kind of show their weaknesses yeah. and then also show their potential as to who they can be as characters. They utilize, and I guess this could kind of fall into plot and story because they're used to kind of develop the story. However, I think they're they're great characters that are introduced. They're fun. They're enjoyable. They have great qualities. They're admirable characters. And yet they're used very cleverly to show, like for Suki to show in Sokka and Bumi to show in Aang, areas of weakness in these characters that are not necessarily negative aspects of them as a whole, but areas where they can improve. And then they push these characters to a better potential. And I think that's just great. I think it's one reason that those two characters just even in these two episodes alone are just very well liked because they don't like the way that Suki approaches Sokka and, and changes his perspective on how the Kyoshi warriors are just as effective warriors as what Sokka understands in the South pole as the kind of warriors that he's used to. Suki gives him, corrects his perspective and yet she doesn't, have any kind of grudge against him. There's no malice in it. Right. She just, she corrects him and then moves on and introduces him to a new perspective and a new way of looking at things. And Boomy does the same thing for Aang. You know, you're approaching things from a traditional way and, or a a very head-on method and think about things differently. And so it it kind of works out that those two episodes back-to-back kind of, encourage our main characters to go beyond who they are when they're introduced and it gives them an opportunity for growth. So overall, and I I think that this is kind of a great setup for the show to see that these characters are not perfect right out of the gate and they're going to continue to have areas where they grow and change and become better and 
improve as people and then of course improve in their skill set and their navigation of the world and things like that so overall three out of three points these char- i just think these characters are some of the best characters in especially in kids television but even in adult television i just think that's done very very well so three out of three for me okay So our next uh, category is aesthetics. Uh, We have two possible points for this. um, And I gave it one point. Um, I have just a few things that kept me from giving it the full two points. And I'll talk about that. But first, I want to talk about the positives. Um, So the style of this show is very anime. Um, It's very Japanese style. Um, So if you aren't a fan of like Japanese animation style, uh, that may be something that deters you from this show because it it is the overall style. It's very anime. Now, it's not as exaggerated as some animes are, um, but I think it's worth noting that that's kind of the basis for the style is, is kind of that traditional Japanese anime. Um, I think the episode title screens are so beautiful. They're so simple, and but it, it literally just says, like, the book, which the, the way that they broke up the seasons as they call them book one book two and book three um and they're uh titled after the different nations so book one is water um since we kind of started there uh at the you know in the water nation um so uh but it's just so simple it just gives you like the the book or season that you're on and the name of the title or the name of the episode title and i just think for some reason those screens have become iconic to me. Um, They're just really beautifully done. I think it just goes to show that, like, you don't need to, like, make any sort of title screen loud and busy for it to be effective. Um, The music in this series, absolutely phenomenal. Um, They do a lot of, like, really nicely inspired, like, Asian sounds and instruments, and I think it just kind of helps build the world. I think the music is always paced with the scene really perfectly. Everything's always just like paired nicely. Uh, it's never distracting, um, but it's always noticeable, which I think is exactly what you want your music to do in anything, um, not just in TV shows, but in every sort of media. When you add a layer of music, you want it to add without being distracting. Um, so uh, I think expressions on characters are so unique and vivid. They um, so perfectly mirror and I guess extrapolate on the personality of that character, the emotion that they may be feeling. Sometimes it's funny and I think that's okay to have like the very exaggerated expressions. But even when we're not exaggerated, I feel like the expressions on characters are just so well animated that even without dialogue, I think in animation, it's harder to achieve this, but they do achieve this very consistently in this show, is that when there is no dialogue, you can still read a character based on their expression. That's much easier to do with a live actor because it's much easier to catch nuances in face um, with a real person who can control the muscles, you know, of their face as at will. It's much harder to get that with an animated character. And yet somehow this show figured out how to do that consistently. Um, One thing I noticed, I don't know if you noticed this, but that the color palettes in each episode, they match the mood and location of wherever they're at. 
So I think that's to be commended. We don't have like one color palette that we stick with through the whole show. Right. Of course, you have um, like Aang's airbender outfit is always going to be that orange and, you know, yellowy kind of palette and that's kind of like the palette of the air nomads and then you have the blues for the water and so that's what Katara and Sokka are wearing all the time so you have some things that don't change but when the characters change locations the color palettes around them change to match and I think that's just like a small detail but it really does make the world feel real because it feels like we're in a new place and this new place does look different and sound different and so you really feel that sort of sense of adventure because everything is changing in a way that feels like natural change. Um, that's just something that I noticed this time that I've never really thought about before in the show. And then there are great editing moments. The one that I really want to talk about is um, uh, in episode five, there's the mail shoot scene where they're in those like cement or stone baskets um, that go through the mail chutes. And then there's one part where they're, they get off the rails and they go right in front of these earth nation soldiers or guards or whatever. And it stops. It's very like sitcom-y and like all of their expressions are very like funny and exaggerated and there's some narration over it. And then it continues. It just feels different than anything we've seen before in editing, but it doesn't feel so out of place that you're like, whoa, what was that? But it's just like a funny moment. You laugh, you know, because it is exaggerated in such a way that, you know, the humor is very evident that this is supposed to be a lighthearted moment. Um, but it's a really, it's just really good editing kind of overall. Um, the elements are um, animated very well. Um, the way that they animate the water is different than how they animate firebending and, you know, earth movement and air. Like, all four styles of bending have a, a slightly different animation style to it. And I think that's realistic because those four elements have different properties to them. And so they should be shown visually to have different properties. I don't want my fire bending to look like water bending. I wouldn't buy it. So the fact that, you know, the fire bending is usually very fast and wide. There's a lot of like a sense of, of, um, I guess a lack of control when you see fire bending happening. You know, water bending is usually slower. Everything is much more round, that sort of thing, as far as animation style goes. Um, it's something that, you know, we see right in the beginning of the show and then continues on through the rest of the series. And I think must have been something that they had to, like, work hard at um, since it is four different styles. And then not only that, but each bender of each style has their own style. So they have to change the animation to match the bender. It had to be more work than I would imagine. And I just want to give acknowledgement to the animators for all of that work because it, all of those aesthetics really, if you're thinking about it, any sort of show like this, every facet of your show, the purpose is to further the story, even if it's not a story device. So even things like animation, they're there to further your story and further your believability. And I think most of the aesthetics do. Now, 
here's my critique and why I only gave it one out of two points. And it's not necessarily the fault of anybody. It's just the problem that happens, particularly with kids shows. So the first episode of a show is called The Pilot. Especially with kids shows, but this is with all shows. You have to have something to submit to a networking company before they will greenlight your show. And that's a pilot episode. If you look at a lot of Disney shows, like the live action Disney shows, Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, Hannah Montana, that sort of era where this show, where Avatar The Last Airbender was also fit into that. You'll notice that the, the children actors always look significantly younger in the first episode. That's because they have to film everything, edit it all together, and give it to the distribution company for green light before they even continue making the rest of the show. I'm assuming that that happened with this show too because that's the typical. But because of that, the pilot episode looks a little rough now. And there is improvement after that first episode. But if you were had never, ever, ever seen Avatar in your life, which I'll be surprised, honestly, if that is you. But if you've never seen it ever in your life, you don't even know. And you were to start and you watch that first episode, you might be like, this is a little gross looking. And it does not, maybe gross is too harsh of a word. But um, it is significantly choppier. Um the, uh, I, I think just the lines, um, coloration is not as good. Uh, just things like that, um, that I think later in the show, really, it really comes into itself are missing out of that first episode, um, to the point where I significantly noticed it on this rewatch where I was like, Ugh, it's kind of, even the sound quality is a little bit, um, I wouldn't say it's crackly. It's just not as smooth. The sound mixing and editing is not as smooth. Um, so just all facets that come in post-production um, are a little rough in that first episode and a little bit in episode two. But by the time we're in episode three, four, and five, like that's smoothed out significantly. So I don't want to discourage anybody from watching the show. It's just one of those things where it's like, I wish that they had either been given the opportunity or just taken it upon themselves after being greenlit to go back and try to smooth some of those things before it officially aired. Um, I don't know the ins and outs and details of how often that's allowed to happen. Um, it could be that it's like Nickelodeon's like, nah, man, this is what you submitted. So this is what's airing. And if so, then okay, I understand it. Um, but uh, it is noticeable. So because of that, I only gave one out of two points for aesthetics. Alrighty. Well, I actually gave it two out of two for aesthetics. Um, and this is pretty, I feel like this is pretty consistent. In general, Tori tends to have just a better, more critical eye for aesthetics than I do. But um, in the, in the inverse, you tend to be more critical about plot and characters. So, yeah. So it's just, it's why we do this show. So I just think the aesthetics in this show overall are just exceptional, especially for a kid's TV show. I mean, essentially this show is a Saturday morning cartoon and the quality overall quality of these first five episodes, I just think are, are just done really well. Um, the art style, like you said, you kind of already touched on. It's just, it's extremely consistent throughout these first five episodes. We don't see a gross change, gross meaning large change in the 
animation style of the characters. Because like you did mention, with pilot episodes, a lot of times we will see characters in the pilot episodes have a very different animation style or different proportions or different expressions or different clothing. You know, a lot of differences between the pilot and the main, or I should say the green lit episodes. Um, but we see a lot of consistency with that. The score, you, you already touched on it. I love the music in this show. And it's, you can see, already hear in the first five episodes, you hear moments of repetition. So similar segments of the score are used for specific needs of emotional intensity or certain areas have different kind of soundtrack to it. If there's something comical happening, the score is going to kind of repeat the similar lines. Um, So I think it's already just in these first five episodes, we're hearing consistency in the score from episode to episode. The sound effects, I love the like slide whistle sound effect that they (laughs) use for humor in episode five is the first episode where we we'll, do a lot of like gong noises and stuff too. Yeah. And then in, in episode five is one of the first moments where somebody tells a bad joke and there's silence and then a random <laughs> cough is heard off screen. Yeah. It's just, it's just played really well without it being overplayed. It's not forced. The, I, the lighting in this show, I noticed in prepping for this episode the lighting is just done so well. The moment, one scene in particular, when the the Fire Navy ship mm, is yeah. sailing through the fog, it looks so good. Yeah. It looks like... A lot of the scenes in the Fire Nation ship, too, look really great as far as lighting goes. Yeah. And then with the lighting in episode four, when Kiyoshi... The, the village is on fire. That dynamic lighting changes when Kiyoshi is burning. And then it the, the it's almost like there's a film over the, the camera lens, if you will, that just paints this very different mood when Aang is kind of looking at this town being, being burnt by the Fire Nation. Uh, it just, it gives a lot of... The, it's used, I should say, the lighting is used to reveal to the viewer kind of this internal viewpoint that these characters are having. I think it's just done very well. I really like the like the visual contrast scene where Zuko and Sokka are both preparing for battle, if you will, and just that contrast, that visual contrast of Zuko being you know, kind of dressed by his armorers while Sokka is putting war paint on in a tent by himself because he's his village's only warrior. And so that contrast is done really well. Those moments of storytelling are done really well. The color palette where we see in kind of the first two episodes, especially this Fire Nation is, you know, a lot of iron, metal, reds and blacks versus these very soft whites, blues of snow and the water tribe, and then these these greens and golds and browns in Kyoshi Island and Omashu that really have these earthy tones. And those, you know, continue to remain consistent in the show. But this is the, in these first five episodes, we're really introduced into kind of the visual aesthetics of the Fire Nation versus the water 
tribe versus the air nomads, even in the Southern Air Temple versus the Earth Kingdom. So we're seeing these kind of color palettes being used, like you mentioned, and they pertain specifically to the nation where your our cast is adventuring. Aesthetically, in general, overall, I really like that this, like I kind of said, it, it's a Saturday morning cartoon, but aesthetically it follows its own rules. So you have moments where the characters may have a more exaggerated expression or, or there's a moment of like editing, if you will. Like you mentioned, that's that scene where the, the cart, the male cart kind of lands and there's this freeze frame moment. Like it's played off as a film choice and not that the whole world suddenly froze. Right. So it, it doesn't have these moments where these characters suddenly defy the laws of physics in their own world, or they have a facial expression that's unbelievably comical. Although there are some moments where stylistically they kind of de- may develop this more anime looking, cartoony looking expression exaggeration, just yeah. for, for effect. But it's not like you have a character that looks one way. And now all of a sudden you have a character who aesthetically looks completely different because it's a cartoon. You can have people look like anything. No, they, they all have the same structure. The animals follow the same proportions and things like that, that follow the rules of their own world, if you will. I One of the biggest reasons I gave this full points is because I feel like with this show, and it's going to be difficult in reviewing future episodes of this show, with this show, aesthetically, I just felt like I had to give a lot of weight to the bending, aesthetically, the visuals of the bending in this show. So the the different bending styles, you know, fire, water, earth, and air bending are all based off of real martial arts styles. And so the the stances are just completely realistic. The the movements and motions and kicks and punches and and acrobatics it's it's all very grounded and based on very real martial art techniques which is so respectful to those martial arts and then also is just very visually appealing to watch it is just so great to see just the combat, particularly Zuko versus Aang on the ship in episode two. And then, of course, the Agni Kai scene with Zuko versus Zhao. It, you watch with Zuko versus Zhao, you watch these two firebenders, like you said, that have very unique styles in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. And they're performing this these combat moves that are just just fascinating to watch. And it looks like you, you're watching real people fight. It could have been so easy for the bending in this show to aesthetically be very cartoony and so outlandish, it doesn't even seem humanly possible or real. Granted, it it's not humanly possible. I completely acknowledge that all of this bending- But you have a good suspension of disbelief watching the show. I mean, it's like you obviously, you, you recognize that this is an animated show and people cannot bend elements, but because of how well it's all done and animated, it's like you're buying it when you're watching it. Right, and, and it, it's like it's following its own rule. Like Aang bends the air around his glider to fly. He's not just all of a sudden 
floating up in the air right. like Peter Pan. He, he follows his own rules. And I, I think that another thing, and I, I couldn't decide if I wanted to mention this in the plot and story or in the aesthetics, and I think it really does fall more into the aesthetics, that the bending just feels organic. Like when Zuko melts the snow off of his own armor, that, I mean, that's just a very human thing to do with bending. It's not like bending is only reserved for combat. Right. You know, Katara's trying to catch a fish in the first episode. Like, if you could water bend, why wouldn't you try and catch a fish? Things like that are just very um, organic to the characters. And then you can tell that aesthetically, they really thought into how would a waterbender use waterbending? How would a firebender use firebending in just a day-to-day? So I just think overall... It's so well done, and these first five episodes set it up so realistically, yet aesthetically, you're watching a bender fight a non-bender, and the bending isn't so overpowered that anyone who's not a bender is just hopeless. You know, in watching Sokka and Zuko fight in that first, you know, I think it's in episode two, actually, Mm -hmm. um, Sokka and Zuko fight each other and you don't watch that and say, oh, well, Sokka's useless because he's not a bender. You, I mean, he kind of gets his butt kicked a little bit, (laughs) but you see that because Zuko is a professionally trained warrior and poor Sokka has been holding down the fort by himself without professional training. And yet Sokka has a boomerang that can you know, knock Zuko upside the head and he has a fighting chance. You watch these Kyoshi warriors fight with Sokka and show him their moves and things and it feels organic. Like these Kyoshi warriors could go up against a firebender and they would be equally matched. And so that aesthetically, I feel like is so hard to do in setting up and just in setting up the show, they did a great job of making this bending look believable and real and also make the martial arts that they're based off of look really appealing and just visually beautiful. And yet balancing the non-benders with the benders in having equal footing against each other in some form of combat, if that were you know to occur in the world. So for that reason, I gave it two out of two points. I think a lot of the weight of that I kind of put into, you know, just general aesthetics, which you touched on a lot, but then also just the amount of work that went into creating this bending is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So two out of two for aesthetics for me. Okay. Um, next category is personal taste and preference. Um, this one was my hardest one to, to rank. And I gave it one out of two points, but I want to ha- hold up before you flay me alive. Let me explain. This show makes me feel good. I love this show. It's very clever. It's easily enjoyed. Many ages can enjoy it. It is a, it's a show that means a lot to me that I have rewatched on multiple occasions. Here is why I could not give it full points. If I rewatch this show too frequently, it feels stale to me. And that's why I couldn't give it full two out of two points. I have to space my rewatches out by usually a couple years at least in order for me to enjoy myself. If I try to watch it any more frequently than that, I feel like I can't, like I I don't have the same appreciation for it. Um, So I think that really kind of just boils down to personal taste. 
not that I dislike the show, but that I have to take it in enough moderation for me to continue enjoying it. Um, that's really all I have to say about it. I don't want anybody to be like, oh, you're a fake fan because you didn't give it two out of two points. But that's my reasoning why is because there are some things in this world that I can rewatch like every week and it, I never lose my enjoyment. Unfortunately, this is not one of those. I have to space it out in order to continue loving it the same way that I always have. So one out of two points. All right. So for me... I gave it one and a half points out of two. And I have to I have to say from the beginning, Avatar The Last Airbender as a show, as a whole, for personal taste and preference, is a two out of two for me. I'm just going to go ahead and spoil that for you right now. It's it's two out of two. It's one of my favorite shows. I rewatch it probably about once a year. I just, I really, really enjoy the show. However, we're only talking about episodes one through five. So, for episodes one through five, my personal taste and preference is one and a half points out of two. I think these first five episodes are a great setup and a start to the series. However, season one is probably my least favorite season compared to the rest of the show. I would agree with that, too. Um, I'm... think it's pro- I was trying to pinpoint why, and I think it's probably because I'm not a big fan of their quote-unquote road trip to the North Pole. Um, I And kind of like I said, like them just having these kind of random, haphazard visits to these different places at the beginning of the show, it's just, it doesn't make a lot of linear sense to me, and so I just don't find it as engaging. Also, it's season one's tough because the characters are still growing. They're still developing. We're still learning who they are. Granted, Aang's bucket list ends up working out as these valuable lessons. They just happen to be on riding the koi fish. And it happens to be Kyoshi Island. And they ha- Sokka happens to learn a lot about the Kyoshi warriors. And we happen to get caught by Zuko. Like, it just, it all is very happenstance. And... It just doesn't feel as compelling to me when I'm watching it. It's kind of like, well, this is, you know, it's it's great. I, I, I enjoy, I don't get me wrong. I really enjoy episode four. The Kyoshi Warriors are awesome. I think they're great characters. I, I like that episode. But a lot of it still feels like a Saturday morning cartoon. And I think that this show, as it progresses, tend to kind of grow out of that kind of rote one episode, beginning, middle, end, doesn't necessarily attach to other episodes, Saturday morning cartoon feel. Um, so, but it's still, this is still new. It's like, it, it's kind of like, which do you like more? Like a, like a puppy that's just sleeping all the time or the, the puppy that's grown a couple weeks and now is fun to play with. Like, it, it's just, this is still the infancy of the show and although I, I do think it's a well done first five episodes, I personally enjoy it better when the puppy's a little older and I can play with it better. So one and a half points out of two for me. Okay. Um, and then the final category is creativity. Uh, so out of one point, I gave it its full point. I think that we have not seen anything from Nickelodeon like this before or since this show. I think that this show did something really great for Nickelodeon in a time that it was really, I think, 
And I don't know this for certain, but I feel like this was an era where Nickelodeon was probably struggling to keep up with Disney because Disney was doing a lot of, sh they were pumping out a lot of new shows that were getting a ton of traction, um, such as Hannah Montana, Sweet Life, that sort of thing. Um, this was all kind of that same era. And I feel like Nickelodeon was probably trying to find something that could get some traffic back to their channel. And I think that Avatar The Last Airbender was a perfect thing to greenlight at that time because it was something different. It wasn't just another uh, live action show for the kids. It was something animated, um, but it was a completely different style for Nintendo. Nintendo, Nintendo sorry. <laughs> Nickelodeon. I think I said Nintendo earlier too. My bad. Nickelodeon. Um, we'd never seen anything kind of like this. And I feel like as a whole, and it did for me and my sister, I think it sort of made the world of anime feel a little more accessible. Before Avatar The Last Airbender, the only anime I'd ever watched was like Pokemon and like Hamtaro. So I think that this was kind of just like another show that maybe felt a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more like sure of itself. Maybe had some slightly more like serious or mature and not to say mature in like an inappropriate or like a not age appropriate way, but like more serious themes than I, than I'd ever gotten from anime before. And so I feel like it, it, it was something that kind of made it feel more accessible. Like that, that sort of like, you know, Japanese style, that more Asian style animation um, felt new to me as a kid, you know, I was like, I've never watched anything like this, especially not something that's rooted so much in Asian culture and it's made very apparent in the show. Um, so I think that that probably was the case for a lot of kids, not just me. Um, it kind of made me feel like, uh, okay, not all animated shows have to feel the same or look the same. Um, and I think that's to be commended. And really, since Avatar The Last Airbender ended on Nickelodeon, sure, we got Legend of Korra, but I, and of course, I've fallen out of keeping up with what's on Nickelodeon. But at least in those few years after, you know, they threw Korra at us, just mo and that was mostly just for the fans of Avatar. That wasn't like a new thing that Nickelodeon was trying to produce. But after that, I mean, I don't recall anything similar coming to Nickelodeon or any other major children's network. So I think it really, really did cement itself as a iconic milestone of a series. And I mean, it ended in 2008. That was 14 years ago. And here we are still talking about it. It's still on Netflix because people still want to watch it. And I think, you know, as much as me and you enjoy this show and could talk for even more hours about it, you know, there are other people out there, you know, that feel the same way or stronger. You know, there's a reason that they made all of these books to extrapolate on the world and characters. It's because people wanted it. And so I think for that reason, it definitely deserves its full creativity point. Um, so huge props to, you know, the creators of this show and everything that they attempted to tackle and succeeded in doing because of that. It was probably a high-risk uh, series, but 
I hope the creators feel that it was a high reward because as a viewer, I feel like it was a high reward. Yeah, absolutely. I also gave it full points for creativity, one out of one points for creativity. Um, it, at this point, I, I really do feel like it's iconic. Um, I know that there's probably all of the hardcore fans, there's a lot of debate on whether or not Avatar The Last Airbender is actually an anime. A lot of anime fans say no. And a lot of people that are more like mild anime fans say yes. I know, I know there's a lot of debate with that, but I would technically consider this a like a quote unquote mainstream anime. It, you know, is it, it's wildly different than the traditional Japanese produced, you know, subbed or dubbed anime episodes that do have a lot more adult themes in them. However, I think that we have to acknowledge that this is just a completely original world. It's an original concept. It's, there's not anything else like it that made it to mainstream, probably with the exception of like Pokemon was, right. was huge. And, you know, Hamtaro. And other, other large animes like One Piece or Naruto or, you know, things yeah. like that. But even those, you look at those and they're still, sure, the animation styles might be similar, but they're completely different. Right. Like when you look at them like that. Yeah. And, and the world is so different unique and distinct for this show and even in these first five episodes they they take a huge undertaking of in three to five episodes they've a stat 20 minute episodes by the way these are not hour-long episodes 20 minute episodes they've established an entire world they've introduced you to all four nations all four types of benders all four you know, conflicts amongst those regions and this huge overarching world ending, you know, the fate of the world's at stake plot. I mean, it's, it's huge. It's a massive undertaking. Like, I don't think I could do that. Technically, if, if it's three 20 minutes episodes, that's an hour. Like, I couldn't divulge a whole plot like that in an hour and make it easy for you to... I was going to say something spicy. ...to understand what... I was going to say, if only uh, season four of Stranger Things could figure out how to (laughs) set up their story and the amount of time that they did in Avatar. Right. For real. Um, And then, you know, the other thing I think with creativity, especially with these four... These... Excuse me. These first five episodes is that these first five episodes introduce four types of bending... And yet they all seem equally matched. I think that's crazy. It would be so easy to make, you know, fire bending the most powerful type of bending. And then it's like water bending or air. I mean, water puts out fire, sure. But it's like, oh, well, air bending. You're not going to be able to do anything with air compared to throwing huge boulders at people or drowning someone with like huge amounts of waves or, you know, it could have been so easy to make one bending element seem inferior to another. And yet it's all equally matched. And I think that alone would get full points for creativity. But of course, I think the impact of this show, when you consider how, like you said, it's been however many years later, it aired in 2005 and we're recording this episode in 2022, and it's still relevant to talk about Avatar The Last Airbender. People are still making fan art. People are still going to conventions. People are still dressing as characters for Comic-Con. I mean, it, it hasn't gone away. If this was just kind of a, a one-note, boring show, or if it was only nostalgia bait, it probably would have died out by now. But yet, it still has the fan base 
that it had when it was airing. And newer generations are being introduced to this show and finding as much appeal to it as the people that were watching it as children when it was airing on TV. So that being said, my total score for Avatar The Last Airbender episodes one through five is nine out of ten. Okay, and mine is eight out of ten. All right. All right, are you ready for some lightning round questions? Yes. Okay, so these questions are going to pertain to the episodes that we reviewed, unless I specify otherwise. Okay. Okay. So, favorite character? Uh, Sokka. Okay. Zuko is probably my favorite character in this episode. He's just so interesting as the villain. I like, I like, this is a hard question. It is a hard question. I'm just trying to go by the first five episodes here. Yeah. Sokka. Yeah. Okay. Um, least favorite character? Um, all those annoying little girls on Kyoshi Island that follow Aang around. Yeah. Yeah, they're... Yeah. Very annoying. I really don't like them. I don't like them, and I don't like the little kids that Sokka's like... The little kids are like, show no fear! Yeah. It's like, but I gotta go to the bathroom! Like, those kids. Yeah. I don't like them. I mean, they're kids, I get it, but also go away. You mm-hmm. annoy me. All right, so favorite character in the whole series. So just the name, name only, no spoilers. Okay. Iroh. And Zuko. <laughs> so. All right. So of the regions that we visited, which include the South Pole, the Southern Air Temple, Kyoshi Island, and Omashu, which was the favorite, lo- which is your favorite location? Um... In the context of the show or in its prime? I would just say... Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say in the context of the show. Okay. So as it is, as we see it in the show. Then Kiyoshi Island. But if it, if the answer was in its prime, I think the Southern Air Temple would have been a really beautiful place. Yeah. So. Yeah. I agree. Um, I think I would probably say Omashu. Okay. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, I like... It Ki- is cool. I like Kiyoshi Island. But like you said, all those little kids live there and they're annoying. True. So at least in... But I mean, there are annoying kids in our town too. That's we true. Can, we just avoid them. That's true. But I feel like in Omashu, I could get away from them. Okay. So, because it's a bigger city. <laughs> all right. Which bending ability would you most like to have? This is a very hard question that I've thought about a lot over the years. But right now, I would say air bending. That would just be so cool. It would be so cool because then I would just, I'd never have to drive in traffic ever again. I could just fly to where I want to go. It's true. On my glider or my air bison. Just saying. Yeah. Sky bison. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Air bending. Which one do you think fits you the most though? Oh, like personality wise? Yeah. Probably water bending. Yeah. But. Yeah. That wasn't the question. Uh, it was not. <laughs> you I was, added that. I did. As a secondary I, I question. did. That was the part B to the question. <laughs> I think I would see. That's that's a tough question too because I think the the bending ability that suits me the most would probably be fire bending. However, air bending would just be so cool. I feel like I would really like to have that. I'm just not really natured like an airbender, to be fair. Um, I think. Earthbending would have a lot of practical uses, though. Yeah. But I think I would probably pick... I would probably choose airbending today. And then tomorrow my answer will probably be different. (laughs) Which bending ability would you least like to have? 
I am not confident enough in my own ability to not be clumsy, so I think being a firebender would be too dangerous, and so I would want to avoid that. <laughs> it's got, it's the, I feel like firebending is the most potentially destructive, and I, I feel like I would have clumsy moments and be like, uh-oh, now the backyard's on fire. <laughs> yeah, but then you just put it out, because you can bend fire. I, yeah, I guess, but I don't know. I feel like I feel like firebending could just be too much for me. I would probably least like to have water bending. I feel like in modern day context, I would have the least utilitarian use for it. So that's probably what I would pick. Unless you wanted to. You just spoiled. You have to edit that okay. out. You cannot leave that in here. Okay, I'll, I'll edit that you out. You have to edit that out. I deliberately, I, wasn't thinking. I deliberately said in the context of these episodes. Sorry, I'll edit that out. Okay, it was really funny. Um, all right, which of the four nations would you most like to be a member of? Part of me kind of wants. Hmm. I don't want to live at the South Pole. <laughs> So I'm going to say I'll be I'll be in the Earth Nation. I think that would be fine. They seem like they they just like living their lives, you know, just chilling. They seem like cool people. So I'm going to say Earth Nation. Yeah. I would not pick especially with these first five episodes. I would not pick the water tribe because no. I I hate the cold and I would not pick the air nomads cuz they all died. <laughs> You know, there's I, a there's a lot of t I, tension in the Fire Nation currently. Yeah, I mean, but if you if you're like a citizen of the Fire Nation, it probably isn't that bad for you, you know. Yeah, I guess. I mean, except for I'd be a little scared of my leader. That's true. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like a very military esque nation mm -hmm. in these first five episodes, so maybe I wouldn't pick the fire nation so that would just leave the earth nation mm -hmm. and i mean all yeah like you said all the people seem pretty happy there they're just like they're just living their lives currently and, yeah so probably that okay. i would pick earth as well all right so last question this is kind of a goofy question like nothing else has been goofy <laughs> but uh who would you pick as your traveling companion so you're gonna travel the world and you have to pick one of these people as your traveling companion grand grand so Sokka and katar's grand grand the cabbage merchant, you, the kid from Kyoshi Island that keeps frothing at the mouth and passing out. Why is he in here? Or one of the frozen guards from the Fire Nation ship. Why is the kid from Kyoshi in here? I'm going to pick... You might want to pick him. No, I don't. <laughs> I want to pick uh, the cabbage merchant because we would always have something to eat. It would be cabbage. Yeah, it's fine. If you're desperate... But he doesn't have any cabbage now. They just threw it over the edge. The, yeah, but the Omashu guards just got rid of it. When we when we get more cabbage, he gonna be making us some cash. We could have cabbage in our soup. We could stuff our cabbage. We, there's lots of options. I'm picking the cabbage merchant. Don't try to convince me otherwise. I feel like he does not seem like a very fun traveling companion. I would not pick him. Maybe you want to you want to you want to travel and just pedal cabbage. You're going to travel the world and just pedal cabbage. That's we need be some your... extra travel funds. That's steady income. 
Uh, I, I, I would not want to do that, obviously. I'd pick the Fire Nation guy. I mean, he... The nondescript man? Yeah, that's frozen. <laughs> He'd be really okay. quiet. <laughs> All right. That's who I would pick. I would not pick Grand Grand. No, me neither. I feel like she would be... She'd make me do chores all the time. Yeah. She couldn't pull Although she was weight. really nice. I mean, She's she really packed. nice, but, like, she can't do any of the heavy labor that's, to help out. That's true. You'd be kind of lugging, lugging Grant Grant around. Mm-hmm. So. Probably have to, like, carry her on her back, like. You would be Appa. Mm-hmm. Carrying Grant Grant around. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that being said, thank you guys so much for joining us on this episode. We look forward to having you back next time. And don't forget, you can follow us on our social medias. Our Twitter is Lion and Mouse Pod. Our Instagram is Lion and Mouse Podcast. And our website is lionandmousepodcast.com. You can find all of our notes, our handwritten notes from every episode if you want to go back and read our scores or see any of that. We also have a suggestion box slash like email box where you can... Tell us what you'd like to hear next, especially if you guys want us to review more Avatar The Last Airbender. Please let us know. Or I should say, we've reviewed a lot of media that has continuations. So if you want us to review more of anything we've already reviewed, let us know. Because we don't want to bore you guys with more content if you want us to try something different. Also, just as a humble plug, we do have a Patreon page. You can support us there if you like and receive gifts and exclusive content for that additional support. If you like what you heard or if you didn't like what you heard, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Um, Giving five-star reviews really helps the algorithms and it helps us out with our content and getting more people to get to hear us and join our community. So if you would like to, we would appreciate that. Thank you guys so much for listening and we will catch you next time.